we're on the ferry leaving New Jersey and pulling up to Brookfield Place. And we're going to go into One World Trade Center, where we're uh, headquarters of Condé Nast and Vanity Fair. It's just a pleasant commute. You know, you're out on the water. You could see the Verrazano Bridge. You could see the New York skyline. Coming in, we're looking at the financial district. So, you know, immediately you're reminded of, I guess, Bernie Madoff and I guess also reminded of Donald Trump, maybe the ultimate grifter, a lot of people would say. But I think that in, in, in general, you know, New York City is a place with so much money and, and power and, and people who crave access to that world or want to be a part of it who aren't and could lead them into all sorts of cons as we've seen with some of the characters we'll talk about today. You're listening to Inside the Hive, where Vanity Fair writers tackle the week's news in politics, media, and entertainment. I'm Maggie Coglin, Senior Vanities Editor, and I'm in the studio today with my colleague, Joe Pompeo. How should I introduce you, Joe? That's easy. Uh, I'm Vanity Fair's Senior Media Correspondent. George Santos is the latest in a long line of public grifters for the social media era. People who get viral attention and fame for lying, which can then be turned into an eight-part streaming series or more. Today, we're going to present a cultural history of how the pipeline from small grift to streaming service became a thing, and how these stories work in the business of news and Hollywood. Are you ready, Joe? Oh, I I just can't wait. George Santos is the grift that that keeps on giving. We just keep getting more and more of his story, and it's all uh, fascinating and and delicious and terrifying all at once. Yes, making it a perfect story in a way. We have so much to dissect. Okay, so to bring everyone up to speed, on Tuesday, President Biden went to Capitol Hill to give his State of the Union address. Members of Congress, I have the high privilege and the distinct honor to present to you the President of the United States. And lo and behold, George Santos was also there. And as his guest, he brought a first responder who was at Ground Zero on September 11th. And, you know, this was a very bold move, considering Santos claimed that his mother was in downtown Manhattan on 9-11, despite the fact that immigration documents proved she was not even in the United States. This was one of the earliest lies he was caught in before his hotel started to unravel. So did you watch the State of the Union last night? No. Okay, so I watched it, and at the beginning, Santos oh. and like, Mitt Romney had I a saw, bit of a. I saw that. Tara, hold on. I just want to. I want to. I just want to pause. It looks like uh, Senator Romney and George Santos just had some words, and it did not look like they were good words. There, uh, looks like Romney told them something as they were walking by. We obviously can't read. I saw that. I did see like the Daily Mail. Cause I always read the Daily Mail before yeah. I go to bed. Of course. So I saw that. Well, the Daily Mail seemed to be reading the lips, and and what I read there was that it was something to the effect of like. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah. Or you don't. You don't belong to be here, or something. And then Santos talked back. Let me see if I could find that. Mitt Romney appears to tell Republican fabulous George Santos, an ass who does not belong in Congress. I do love the word fabulous yeah. in relation to all this stuff because it's that's what it is. It's yeah, like delusions a, of grandeur. Yeah, that's a great. I love that word. I think that's what's so interesting and so fascinating about his story, which is really, I think, like the, the ultimate embodiment of these grifter conman stories that we've become, you know, just increasingly fascinated by in, in the sort of viral web era is that his is, his is still going. So I think that, you know, last night, the fact that he was actually there and like being confronted by Mitt Romney, they seem to have gotten into some words and, yeah. and that that's actually happening is completely stunning. 
And a lot of people seem to think it was something to the effect of you should be ashamed. And it's kind of a through line with all of these grifters that we follow their stories. There is no shame. For George Santos, he's just leaning into it. He's just like doubling down, yeah. you know? So it's, it's, it's really that brazenness, I think, is a part of this, too. And correct me if I'm wrong, he's under investigation by Kevin McCarthy. I think there's an, an ethics, ethics conv- investigation as well as now it seems I've read somewhere that the FBI is investigating the the swindle of you know relating to the, the funds with for this veteran's dog and mm-hmm. now it seems like there was the charges recently of sexual harassment yes that, I, you know, I don't know that. where that's going to go there seems mm-hmm. to probably be multiple parallel investigations that are going to unfold around him in the coming months I think yeah and it's it's interesting because you know when I think of the term grifter I think of someone who is doing small crimes petty things. This is obviously on a much larger scale. When do you think this fascination with grifters started in the media? Because it feels like the past few years, every time I turn on Hulu, there's another, you know, made for Hulu series about a real life grifter. I might have a story. Her name is Anna Delvey. There's something wrong with him. Do you not see that? It's a great time to be a con man in America. Her whole image is fake. We have to stop her. I think that these types of stories have existed in the media for as long as there was media, essentially. Mm -hmm. The term con man first originated in a New York Herald article Mm. in 1849 about the arrest of, you know, some guy who was like just brazenly going up to people on the street and he would say things like, do you have confidence in me to return your watch tomorrow. And, and, and mm-hmm. this, anyway, the New York Herald, this, they, they branded him a, a confidence man. So here's an mm-hmm. early example of, of um, public's fascination with these things. And there's examples throughout, you know, the history of newspapers and journalism. But I think what's, what we're talking about is this kind of like modern, uh, you know, in the era of internet virality, it mm-hmm. seems to have taken on a life of its own. I feel like the, the first story I remember or, you know, that would trace this this obsession, this more recent obsession back to maybe it would be the hipster grifter from 2009. I worked at the New York Observer at the time. My mm-hmm. colleague, Dory Shafir, wrote that story. And it, you know, was about this young woman in her, in her 20s in, in Brooklyn who had been taking in different roommates or friends with stories that she had cancer, she needed money, she, some, she somehow got a job at, at Vice at the time. It's just this, this complete web of lies that mm-hmm. began to unravel to the point where people were starting to, like, want to expose her. And somehow Dory got a tip off about this and we published that story and it just went completely nuts. And this was kind of like in a pre, Twitter was around, but it wasn't really like a thing yet. So it was kind of like, you know, it's getting picked up on Gawker and we're just mm-hmm. seeing all the, all the traffic come in from here or there or, you know, or other websites. And it became this massive, massive thing. And there's something about, you know, the hipster grifter specifically, the roommate angle of it. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've read so many grifter stories where it was like a terrible roommate situation because like New Yorkers especially, your apartment is costing you a fortune, roommates or not. We live in New York, a place with very high priced real estate. It's your sanctuary in a city where you have literally no privacy and then you realize this person who claimed to be someone who at some point must have marketed themselves as a decent roommate, someone to share your living space with, has now turned out to be you know, not who they said they were perhaps fraudulent, you know? And I don't know why the hipster grifter is kind of burned into my mind as when I think of this type of person, this archetype, 
it's always the first one. It's not the Anna Delvies. It's not, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and, you know, Theranos. It's always her. And I don't know if that's because I was, you know, newly working in media at the time that that story came out or because her image was plastered everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like she had lots of tattoos and a very distinct look. And it was like, oh, here's someone who has been dubbed the hipster grifter. And she was kind of on the lam. As yeah. I remember, yeah. we published this story. We, no one knew where she was. And then there was actually like this kind of, you know, there was it became a criminal matter and people were, were trying to track her down. So we're here in Williamsburg, AKA Hipster HQ. We are in search of the hipster grifter. She's around here somewhere. New York Magazine, I think more than anyone, probably is really like... <laughs> <laughs> leaned in to this grifter genre. I was actually just like looking back at some of these stories. They actually had some like pop-up newsletter at one point. Wow. For promoting these types of stories. And they had one story about a woman who just, you know, had advertised, I guess, for, for a roommate and this woman moved in and just wouldn't leave. But then there was another one just about this, this guy who like his whole thing was just to to move in and wage like psychological warfare to start messing with their heads. Oh yeah. This was the guy who used like if I can't stay here, I guess me and my animals will have to sleep on the street as his thing. And, you know, everyone has a bleeding heart for a dog or a cat. Yeah. But he, so. would, but he would just do, like, crazy stuff yeah. to, to really, like, try to, like, psychologically wound these people. It seemed almost like he was a predator in that way. That was called the roommate from hell. That was another really, really big one. But obviously, you know, there's there's a ton of these. Um, these are all in that kind of, like, mm -hmm. vein of just these random nobodies that you've never heard of that just, like, prey on ordinary people. Some of the reason why we're so drawn to these stories is because we are empathetic, mm -hmm. you know, that we, we feel for these people who got taken advantage of because they got caught in the smoke and mirrors of, of these characters. Yeah. And Dirty John was, was another moment, I think, right? Yes. The LA Times podcast about the kind of guy who claimed to be like an anesthesiologist and he grifted his way into the life of this wealthy woman in mm -hmm. Southern California because he was actually this like homeless fuck up or, or, or whatever. But yeah. he, he got her to marry him. He eventually, he was trying to separate her from her family. There was clearly some motive of, you know, I think getting in access to her money and, and her yeah. home and a nice place to live. But I mean, it was just like this wild, wild. That was the first time I became aware of the term like romantic catfishing, mm -hmm. where someone is basically using these like amorous feelings you have to take advantage of you. Yeah. You know, it's not always an email from a prince in another country yeah. asking for money. It can be some guy that sweeps you off your feet and then, you know, in, in turn makes your life a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely disaster is, yeah. is a good word. So that reminds me of the Sarah Lawrence story. Do you remember that one? That was yeah. massive. And this week, there's a series on Hulu that's going to debut, I believe, February 9th called Stolen Youth. Now, this, that whole this was story. the guy who wrangled all his daughter's friends mm -hmm. at Sarah Lawrence into this kind of strange cult and was really predatory. And, and I think actually just got sentenced to like 60 years yeah. in and prison. For if, this? if you think about it at its core, it also started as a roommate story because he was living in his daughter's right. dorm yeah. after having been released from prison in 2010. Here we are 13 years later and he's just been sentenced. And I think this shows, too, how these stories, some of them really do venture into this darker realm of criminality mm -hmm. and kind of like adjacent to, you know, the, the true crime boom. You know, it's kind of like dovetails with the, with this. I think it kind of taps into the same interest in the public. And it's like, what is that interest at its core? You know, why are we so fascinated with true crime? There is something in the social consciousness, which is like, I cannot get enough. Well, and let's talk about some of the other characters in this other kind of camp. 
I think this is, what do we call this? Kind of like the delusions of grandeur, fake it to make it genre. These are kind of, I think, people who, before they're really like going wild with their grift, have already achieved some mm-hmm. level of fame or power or money or notoriety. So this is kind of like the Billy McFarland mm-hmm. Fire Festival sort of story. This is, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and, and Theranos or Sam Bankman-Fried, you mm-hmm. know, who's, who's crypto uh, enterprise was revealed to be, you know, a house of cards. And of course, Anna Delvey, the fake socialite. But all these people became, before we all knew about who they were, before it came out that they were full of shit, you know? Right. And they had already established some level of prominence, maybe less so Anna Delvey. You know, she wasn't as much of a household mm-hmm. name, but she was in, you worked at the New York Post. You probably mm-hmm. remember her from being in Page Six or, right, or something yeah. and certainly like different types of people in, you know, the young social orbit of New York all all knew of her and she was staying at the Mercer. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, these are kind of like people who become prominent and then, you know, the rug is just pulled out and, and their whole scam comes crashing down. Yeah, I remember her specifically. If you're looking for a great story lead, it can often be found in pages of tabloids, people who are reporting on court appearances, kind of behavior within a courtroom is its own kind of universe and always a great way to identify a character if Mm -hmm. you're looking for a lead to dig around on. But I do remember her being dubbed, I believe the term was wannabe socialite. Even before, like, you know... When she was early in the court uh proceedings because, you know, the charges against her had... She was dabbling in this world of the rich and the famous, which she clearly couldn't afford, which was a facade she was putting on to get people to invest in her projects. She was someone who seemed to be... A fabulous, like we were talking about George Santos before, someone who had uh, ideas that maybe they couldn't financially support and in a very, I don't know, American dream capitalist way Mm -hmm. was trying to get it done by any means necessary, legal or not. So Anna Delvey, so she was, the Post was covering her court appearances Mm -hmm. because, you know, she kind of got found out, but she really blew up first because Vanity Fair published a story by a former photo editor of ours who had been a friend of hers and who got conned by her. I think Vanity Fair has always kind of had a good foothold in, in this this type of genre. What's another one? I mean, we do you want to talk about the Grey's Anatomy grifter? Can we call her the Grey's Anatomy grifter? Has that been? I don't know if that's been coined, but I, li- <laughs> I like the alliteration. I mean, Elizabeth Finch. She was a Grey's Anatomy writer who, you know, she wrote about her personal traumas online and then she wove details into the show's plot. And then she was accused of fabricating it, which, you know, Grey's Anatomy has a huge viewership. It's been on TV forever. That show is appointment viewing in a way where if I call my mother during the time that Grey's Anatomy is on, she'll be like, Grey's is on, let me call you back. Bye. My own mother. Come on. So it's like people yeah. are really, really devoted. So when this came out, this was a bombshell and this was, story. This was a two-part series from Evgenia Peretz in, in mm-hmm. Vanity Fair, I believe, Yes, right? that came out uh, May 2022, mm-hmm. so last May. Really fantastic reporting, uh, really, really unbelievable stuff that someone was able to live a lie and you know, use it to advance their writing career. And again, it's kind of that brazenness of thinking or counting on not being found out, most likely. You can't yeah. you can't lie forever. And I think that the more influence you accrue or the more prominent you become, the the higher you climb the ladder, the, mm-hmm. the higher the stakes are of being yeah. found out. And I wonder what goes through some of these people's minds. You know, they're getting what they want mm-hmm. through this deceit. And that's a common theme among all of these characters that we've discussed. Yeah. You know, it's like... 
you've got to know to some extent this is temporary and maybe that's why you're really gunning yeah. for that, you know, gold ring. Inside the Hive will be back in just a moment to talk about the business of grifter storytelling. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So, Joe, how do you think the growing fascination with grifters coincided with the economic downturn in the late 2000s? Well, again, this was a time where in our industry, the business model was being turned on its Mm -hmm. head by the web. I mean, this is also like, you know, the recession kind of inflamed things even more. But more and more publications needed, you know, lots of eyeballs, lots of web traffic, Mm -hmm. stories that are going to attract mass attention and, and, you know, go viral, as, as we call it. It's You know, going back to the hipster grifter, I remember that story was originally going to be for the web or something, ended up going in, in the newspaper. And it, the day it published, like I said, it just blew up. Mm. That felt like a time where like that notion of a viral story started to enter, you know, our vocabulary. And then again, this was like the pre-platform, pre-social media era, but it was a time when everyone in this business started having to really pay attention to traffic and Mm -hmm. how many eyeballs were on a story. And that only accelerated from there because the business pressures have only become more more challenging Mm -hmm. ever since. So I think that the other interesting thing here is these stories take a lot of work. You know, you have to dedicate, you know, a magazine reporter is going to maybe work on this for for months and it's going to be the only thing that their salary is justifying for those several months. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of legwork that goes into it, but there's going to be a payoff. Yes. And these stories then, you know, New York Mag or or Vanity Fair, whoever can publish one of these stories and everyone just goes nuts with it and it gets such pickup and it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then it leads to other opportunities. So I think on the one hand, there's, there's kind of an incentive to, you know, do these stories because it's going to bring a large readership to your publication. People are going to, who don't subscribe are going to see this. Maybe they're going to subscribe. It's going to, you know, help internet advertising or whatever, because you're getting more more traffic. But then these stories also evolve into valuable IP. Yes. You know? And we've really seen that boom now. Like, for Absolutely. example, the hipster grifter, I believe. Bringing was, it full circle here, yeah. right? Like, I, I, there was an item not too long ago about her story being kind of shopped around, and maybe there was some involvement from Mindy Kaling. I think, yeah, something she was, Mindy Kaling was maybe going to mm-hmm. work on something with her, and, and she's shopping a book now. Yeah. So, I mean... And that's many years later. That's that's a slow burn, but you know some of these stories now are just immediately going straight oh, yeah. to Hollywood. You know, and I, you know, Dirty John that started as a podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was in the print as well. So it kind of, I think it was riding that kind of like true crime late mm-hmm. late two thousand tens true crime podcast wave that got turned into a Netflix series. Mm-hmm. I believe there was like a life some kind of like schlocky Lifetime series <laughs> that was. Based on it, I think there was a docu-series. Yeah. You know, Anna Delvey, I mean, that turned into the original author of the Vanity Fair story, got a big book deal. Mm -hmm. I still see that book on shelves in the true crime section a few Mm -hmm. years later. It must be have a good backlist potential. You know, Anna Delvey, the Netflix series was a huge hit. That was based on Jessica Presler's story that got got optioned and turned into 
the Netflix show, which which everyone watched. Was that right. a Shonda? That, yeah, was that was a Shonda Rhimes show. So a lot of money there. Mm-hmm. She has you know a hundred million dollars in her in her war chest to make these shows. Michael Lewis, mm-hmm. uh, formerly of, of Vanity Fair, was working on apparently a book or something about Sam Bankman Freed, mm-hmm. the crypto guy. And when when his crypto business came crashing down, immediately Michael Lewis's agents at CAA just you know started shopping that story. I think it got bought probably for a good chunk of change mm-hmm. right away. I'm kind of missed this, but the Tinder swindler was a huge thing last year. Oh, That's yes. a big Netflix show. What was that? that? Do you remember that what that was based on or That was about a man who you know, romantic catfishing. He had multiple women falling for him. He had them wiring him money. There was a woman who I believe like took out like loans to support this guy essentially, put herself in serious debt. And he said he was the son of a very rich jeweler. Right. So even the grifters are kind of like they have their second acts. And yes. we just ran something on Billy McFarlane yeah. of Fire Festival. Our colleague Delia Kai just interviewed him. He has a new yes. startup or something, which <laughs> which he claims is going to be totally above board. But yeah. you know, certainly he he kind of will leverage his fame to try to get his next things. Yeah, off and the I, ground. Billy McFarlane was someone who before Fire Festival had had a lot of other endeavors right. fail. So it's like, you know, yeah. we'll we'll see what happens with this yeah. one. But now he has kind of the stink of the fire Festival attached to his name. But yes, you have a few things going on. I think that these mm-hmm. stories are profitable just from, you know, the standpoint of bringing audience to your publication, mm-hmm. big, big audience. And then they're also, you know, they're really valuable in this era, even as the streamers, are, they're kind of, everyone's kind of contracting. I think these are still going to be hot stories that, you know, agents are looking out for these. Producers are always have their eye out for these types of things. Mm-hmm. Publications, like we at Condé Nast and other publications, we have studios that are shopping actively our stories yes. out to Hollywood. And I think that, you know, there's such a market, especially with like on Netflix for these true crime and, and con man sort of documentaries right. that I don't think that appetite's going to no. die down anytime soon. No, it's always like, what's the next one? I can't get yeah. enough of this. Let's keep feeding the fire. Let's continue with these bidding wars for these characters that only exist, you know, once they are found out on the pages of Vanity Fair, you know, you wouldn't know about someone swindling women for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. You wouldn't, without Netflix, like you wouldn't know about Anna Delvey without VF. These things are essentially the bread and butter for what people are reading these days. Yeah, I agree. I mean, all of this really leads me to ask, who is the authority on grifter stories in Hollywood? Like, is there an agent who's like providing hit after hit, scanning the pages of all the tabloids and magazines looking for the next grifter hit? I mean, that sounds like a great job. I kind of <laughs> want that job. But I think, you know, how this works generally, I, I think this kind of like Hollywood pipeline is really embedded mm-hmm. in the structure of large media organizations mm-hmm. now. Everything is, is pretty deliberate. So I think even before a certain story publishes, I think editors, writers certainly are probably thinking about, does this have potential to be sold? Could it be sold? They're probably communicating with the people inside the media company about, you know, we might have something here. And, you know, I think if you are someone who has an agent and you're working on a story like this, they're thinking about, is this a book? And that can that book be sold to this? I mm-hmm. think there are producers, and certainly I think probably at agencies and production companies, they definitely have people that are reading, not just grifter stories, but anything that's going to make good IP. And I right. think that's all a very kind of like deliberate IP cottage industry. Yes. Right? Because they just want people need more and more IP to be competitive in this business, in the streaming wars. Again, yeah. even even as the streaming wars themselves are kind of like 
cooling down a little bit because you know subscriber growth is, is slowing down in some cases, and some of these big companies have lost a lot of stock value, and everyone's being you know we're maybe heading into recession. Everyone's becoming a little more mindful of, mm-hmm. of, of what they're spending and what subscriptions they're taking out. Yeah. Nonetheless, you know you still need IP, and I think that these stories are just a reliably pretty sound bet. Yeah, and I do think the trajectory used to be article to book deal to series or, you know, made for TV movie or whatever it was. Now it's just, let's get straight to the entertainment. Let's cast this article, you know, as soon as you start seeing it going high in your trending bar. Yeah. It's all kind of happening, you know, at at once. When you see something that works, you want more of what works. Yes. And I just think these stories are, are a pretty safe bet for them. We'll be right back in just a moment. So at its core, at its most fundamental, what does it say about human nature and our society that we are all so obsessed with these very messy narratives? It's like, what, what is the psychology behind that? And these are just great stories. You know, we as humans, we love storytelling. We love mysteries. Mm-hmm. We love things that are, are hard to wrap your head around. Th- these stories are just like these messy yarns. There's an element of like shouting Freud. Mm-hmm. Did mm-hmm. I pronounce that right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Schadenfreude, I believe it is. <laughs> I think this is similar to like the fascination with true crime, at least my fascination with these types of stories. You kind of want to like understand what, how a person can be driven to this. Like mm-hmm. you want to try to get inside that person's head, what motivates them, you know, what drives yeah. them. I think that same way with, with a true crime story, you're kind of like, we can't understand you and I, I, at least I think not. We, like, how can someone commit murder? It's, it's something mm-hmm. you can't fathom how someone like George Santos can have told as many outrageous tall tales as, and, you know, and kind of like conned as many people as he has. Like, there's a yearning for like wanting to wrap your head around that and get a grasp on that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to think that cause and effect is something that applies. <laughs> In every aspect, you know, that there's a reason that people act this way. Yeah. There's a reason that they'll risk everything to gain, I don't know, their 15 minutes of fame, some level of power. You know, it's all, I guess it's all about power at the yeah. end of the day. And not to take this in too earnest of a direction here, but I think there's something too about, we could say about journalism mm-hmm. here. Because again, when these stories are in like the post or whatever, you know, they don't become the cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. that way for, for the most part. Right. I think because... I think the reason it takes magazines or a book or a documentary to elevate these stories to a level of real cultural obsession is because it takes like a really good narrative with twists and turns and suspense and and narrative tension Mm -hmm. to really bring the story alive. And that's, you know, to bring it back to where we started here, that's another thing that I think is kind of unique about the George Santos story because there was this massive New York Times investigation that kind of like was a laundry list of all these ways he had inflated his resume from like faking, you know, where he went to school and, you know, saying he played on a volleyball team he didn't play on and he didn't really work at these places. You know, it was, it kind of like lit the fuse. That on its own was a good piece of mm-hmm. storytelling, but there's just so, I mean, the, the George Santos story has just been this like ongoing swirl of yeah. more and more coming out. It's, it hasn't just been this one neat story ends here, mm-hmm. story begins here, story ends here. Like we haven't, I feel like we haven't got to the ending yet. It feels like we're still waiting for some shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. Like, where do you think it's headed? Where do, you, where do you think this is all going? I mean, where can it go except from him being removed from his position? Right. Like, I, I can't imagine him continuing to hold this seat. Yeah. 
the residents of that district, which I believe is Long Island, some Long Island uh, uh-huh. neighborhoods. Maybe a little bit of Queens in yeah. there. Yeah. They've got to feel taken for they fools. They want well, even the Republicans there, they're, well, they want them out. And yeah. I'm sure none of, you know, the McCarthy types, they don't want anything to do with them. They just want to right. kind of preserve as much of the slim majority that they can. But I also wonder, like George Santos, do you think there will be, you know, the, the hit Netflix docu-series or docu-drama or the HBO documentary? Do you think we're going to see some like George Santos IP? I wonder oh. if people are already kind of working on it. And a hundred percent. I mean, if we had inventing Anna on Netflix, I'm sure there will be becoming George Santos on Hulu. You yeah. know, like yeah. it is ripe for it's, television. It feels inevitable. Yes. I think. You know? There are so many players involved. There were so many facets of his life that turned out to be false. There are so many characters involved in the creation of this one mega character who we all can't stop talking about. Why wouldn't you translate that to television? And he's already been parodied on mm-hmm. Late Night and, and SNL. So I think And that, he had like, opinions about that too. He felt yeah. like it wasn't, you know, up to par. Yeah. But you could picture like in the documentary, if they're mm-hmm. saying to say there's a George Santos four-part, six-part documentary series on HBO. It's like you could picture, well, here's the drag queen from Brazil. Mm-hmm. And now you're talking to the candidate who he he defeated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, here is the the former roommate mm-hmm. whose scarf he stole. I mean, there's such a wide, a yes. large number of people that you could picture being tapped to talk about him. We haven't really heard from a lot of those people, like mm-hmm. firsthand directly. I think a lot of people have their own stories to tell about him. And I think that'll be compelling yeah. TV. Well, thanks, Joe. Thanks for taking me down memory lane and revisiting all these stories that really piqued my interest then and now. It was certainly fascinating, if if nothing else. It was. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Gabe Quiroga and Jennifer Nolson. For more news from Inside the Hive, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at vanityfair.com forward slash newsletter forward slash hive and let us know what you thought of this episode or if you have any comments or questions tweet us i'm at maggie coglin and i'm at joe pompeo next week join us again inside the hive where wall street washington and silicon valley meet i spent a lot of the pandemic just like broadcasting from my bathtub so this is very nice (laughs) very different yeah this is very chic